Um, let's turn to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to just be looking at one verse today as we continue in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, uh, verse 12. And as, uh, as has been our custom, we're going to have the number up here in a second that you can text if you have questions that we'll display during communion and then after the service, I'll be over here and we can try to talk through further questions on this passage. So Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we um, have been learning what it means to be a disciple of your son. And as we continue to see what he taught and how he lived, I pray that you would continue to guide us and renew us and uh, lead us in your ways. We know this is a gift of grace by your spirit because of what Jesus did as he laid his life down for us, showing us grace, forgiving us, setting us right with you. And so now we live in this school where you're transforming us. And so may you speak to us now by your spirit and do this renewing work in us. Give us the strength we need to follow you, the conviction of sin that we need, the, the guidance, and give us joy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So um, we've been talking about what it means to be a disciple for weeks and weeks, and we're coming up to the end of this sermon uh, by Jesus where he's been showing us that to follow him, to be an apprentice, someone who is learning his way of life, joining his school, living in the world as he has created us to live, uh, we've seen that we're to be with Jesus. That means we've got to come to him in faith and then spend time with him as a child of God, praying to our heavenly father who loves us. Uh, we've learned that we've got to begin to develop the character of Jesus, and we've seen all sorts of angles on that through the Beatitudes and through the rest of the sermon. Uh, and then we also learned that we have to join Jesus in what he is doing in the world. We have to do the works of Jesus. That is the picture we've been getting over and over again, week by week. We've looked recently at pride, judgmentalism. Uh, last week, we talked about entrusting ourselves to the heavenly father rather than to worldly powers. And today we are getting to the very end of the main body of Jesus's sermon, this is kind of a bookend to the beginning of the, the main portion of his sermon, and he's uh, sort of returning to the theme of love. We've already looked at how we're to love our enemies and to forgive them back in chapter 5, but verse 12 here, um, like I said, it's bookending where Jesus had talked earlier about the, the law and the prophets, how he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, and here he kind of ends the main body of the sermon by bringing that same phrase up again, this is the law and the prophets. And so next two weeks, we'll look at the conclusion of his sermon, but today we're going to focus on love. Now, um, you know, today everyone thinks love is a good idea, right? It's, it's good and right. That's not a debated, heated idea that Christians bring to the table. It, it used to be, but it hasn't, uh, it's not that way now, right? We celebrate love in our culture. Um, in fact, we celebrate love as the solution to world problems, right? I mean, just think of all the songs that are sung about this, you know, Burt Bacharach, what the world needs now is love, sweet love, right? Uh, the Beatles, all you need is love. Uh, Blessed union of souls, I believe that love is the answer. Bob Marley, 
one love. Like I, that's just a, a handful of songs that we could point to that are about how love will solve the world's problems, right? And of course, uh, love has been turned into a slogan, a political slogan or a social slogan uh, for various uh, rights, right? Love is love. So everybody's okay with love in America for the most part. That's We're all okay with that. But there's a lot of confusion about what that actually means, what scripture actually teaches about what it means to love people. And so essentially today is going to be an extended meditation on this idea that we are called to love others as we want to be loved. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Um, and then we're going to talk about the kind of the foundation of that in the Christian story and the power that the Christian story gives us to actually love one another. So uh, let's just read this verse again. Uh, verse 12, it's very short. Jesus says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, I said already that this is the summary or the, excuse me, the end of the main body of the letter. And that's why Jesus begins with the word so. You could also translate that therefore. So he's kind of looking back at all that he's just said. And he's like, okay, so here's what I'm getting at. And then he gives us the bottom line, right? This is the summary of this new way of life that Jesus is teaching. And he says, whatever you wish that others would do to you. Okay, that's, that's kind of supposed to be in our mind. What, what do I want others to do for me, if you really think about that, what is it you want others to do for you? How do you want others to treat you? Um, you boil it down, and at bottom, what we want others to do to us is seek our good, right? Think about all the various situations that you might be in. Maybe you're um, you're in need, or maybe you are misguided. You know, when people relate to you, what you want from them is that they're relating to you to seek your good. And Jesus speaks universally here. He says, whatever that might be, that's, that's got to shape how you relate to other people. You need to do that also to them. You actively need to seek the good of other people, right? This is a very practical instruction that he's given. It's a very simple instruction. In fact, a lot of times when people come to me as a pastor and they're asking how do I navigate this really complicated situation? You know, it's maybe a, how do I break up with this person? Or how do I navigate this situation with my boss at work? Or I've got this family member. I mean, honestly, most of the time I just sit there and go, okay, well, let's think about how you would want to be treated if you were in their shoes, in their place. What, what, what does it look like to seek the good of the people you're dealing with here? And suddenly it opens up all sorts of possibilities and how to relate to this person. And when we're often kind of stumped, we're not really sure what to do, this gives incredibly clear guidance. Just put yourself, what would you want? If, if you were in their shoes, what would your good be? And how can you seek that? That's what Jesus is saying we should do. And he says, this instruction is what the law and the prophets are all about. I mean, the law and the prophets basically are a way of talking about the whole Old Testament, all of God's instruction and revelation. It is a summary of all that God has commanded of his people. You should love your neighbors yourself. He's saying, this is it right here. Whatever you want people to do to you, you do that to them. And Jesus confirms that he's talking about love later on in Matthew, because when someone says, what's the Old Testament teach? He says, basically, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two great commands. So loving your neighbor as yourself is, a, is basically a summary of all that Christianity teaches about our ethical way of life. And the New Testament confirms this is what Jesus is getting at here. In Romans 13, 10, Paul says, love is the fulfilling of the law. James 2.8, if you really fulfill the royal law or the supreme law, according to the scripture, 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself, he says, then you're doing well. Or in Galatians 5.14, Paul says again, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, one phrase, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And 1 John, this beautiful letter that we looked at not too many years ago, this, this whole book is instructing us to see that to follow Jesus means to live lives of love for our brothers and sisters. Love is at the core of all that Jesus is commanding us. It is the heart of his school that he has come into the world to teach us about and to show us the way. So to develop the character of Jesus then is to grow into a person that increasingly loves, that increasingly seeks in action the good of others rather than simply living for ourselves and satisfying our own desires. That's at the heart of all that Jesus is teaching. It is fundamental to being a Christian, to be growing in love for other people. And love, Jesus is clear, is active. It's not just sentiment. It's not just feelings. It's actually doing to people what is good for them. Now, this may not sound revolutionary or radical, but it is. And I'm going to spend some time explaining why. So that's the first thing we're going to look at, the revolution of love. And then I'm going to talk about the ingredients of love, and then finally the ground and power to love. So first, the revolution uh, of love. Today, we typically assume that love as a central moral teaching is just obvious and common sense. It's very rational. But the reality is the centrality of love was totally unique in all of history in terms of moral teaching. Aside from Israel... And before Christianity, no religion, no culture, no philosophy, no regime taught about the centrality of love of neighbor. It was not existent in the world. John Dixon, a historian, he's written a great book called Bullies and Saints. I highly recommend it. It goes through the history of the church and shows the good that the church has done in the world, but also the ways the church has failed to live up to its own teaching, principally this teaching right here, to love others. And he shows that in all the Egyptian Proverbs, in the Code of Hammurabi in Babylon, in the writings of Plato and Aristotle in Greece, in the Oracles of Delphi of Greece, in the moral discourses of Roman um, authors like Seneca and uh, Epictetus, Epictetus, I don't know how to say that name, uh, Plutarch, all these different uh, discourses in Rome, none of these things had discourses on the importance and the centrality of love. And when you look at Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism, which date thousands of years in the past. We do not see this teaching of love. And that's important to understand because a lot of people say, well, in Hinduism, you do get teachings about love, but it's very narrow. It's only a certain type of love for certain types of people in uh, this hierarchy of the caste system. You have a duty to love certain people in your caste. In Buddhism, they do speak about universal love, but they mean it very differently because in Buddhism, the whole goal of Buddhism is to detach from ourselves and to lose our sense of individuality and to be free from desire. It's a fundamentally different understanding of what love is about. And so um, when you look across the world historically and you look at what cultures and religions valued and taught, it was things like honor, glory, power. But love for enemies, love for neighbors, universally, all people, was not ever taught until we get Israel and the teachings of Jesus. And secular humanism today um, would, of course, espouse love for humanity as important, but they lack the foundations and a basis for why that should actually be. They're actually borrowing from Christianity in teaching that, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But in Christianity, love is central, it is fundamental, 
and it is positively required of us and universally required of us. So even in Israel, um, we, we see in the Old Testament this teaching of love, but as you look at the intertestamental period, you see that um, the writings of Jewish scholars put this teaching of Jesus in negative terms. So you have things like this from Tobit 4. Do not uh, do to no one what you yourself dislike. So it's a negative command. Don't do something to someone else if you wouldn't like that being done to you. Or recognize that your neighbor feels as you do and keep that in mind when you treat them in a certain way. They have dislikes just like you. That's the teaching of Sirach, right? Um, the Babylonian Talmud, which came after Jesus, phrases it similarly. What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. So all of those are couched in negative terms. And friends, we have to understand that's, that's actually slightly different than what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus is clarifying that the Old Testament teaching is about actively pursuing the good of our neighbor. John Dixon contrasts the golden rule with these other negative ways of putting it. He calls that the silver rule. And he says this, it's the difference between choosing not to punch my enemy in the nose and choosing to build my enemy a hospital. Do you see how much different those two things are? Uh, you know, as, as legalistic people, we want to know the rules. What, what should I not do? Because I want to avoid doing the bad thing. And so let me know the limit so I can go right up to that and not have to worry about it. But Jesus is saying you have to actively seek the good of other people, even to the point of building a hospital for those who have done nothing for you and may even be your enemy. And, and Jesus says this applies to all people, right? And we saw this earlier in um, this sermon. We see it later in his teachings about who our neighbor is. Jesus makes it clear that we're to love everybody, seek their good, even the good of our enemies. Now, you might say, well, perhaps Christianity was the first to put love at the center, but they were just, you know, Christians were just discovering something which we all now see is rational and obvious and good common sense. But the, the thing is, Christianity is not just the origin of the centrality of love. It is the only worldview that can um, reasonably sustain this teaching. Christianity, unlike every other religion historically, asserts that the individual, each person, has dignity and value because we are made in the image of God. Each person reflects um, the beauty of God, has a role in God's mission, is meant to live and relate to God in the community of persons, uh, of, of humanity, and so they each have value and dignity, and they are owed our love and our respect. Pagan and Eastern religions, from animism to Hinduism to Islam, assume a hierarchy of persons in one form or another. And that means that all our eth the ethical commands um, get um, reduced to who has more value. I owe things to people who are valuable, but not to people who are less valuable than me. And so you, things like, you see things like heredity um, taking a, a, a very strong place in moral systems. You see the idea of utility. What value does this person have in society? That shapes what I owe them. Secular humanism equates, uh, excuse me, says that all people are valuable, but it easily slides into these old ways of thinking about the value of people in terms of heredity and utility. And we see this um, in debates about end-of-life issues and abortion and disability. Um, it, it becomes very clear that slowly there's a creep into saying, well, is that person really fully human? And are, do we owe them our love? And so um, Christopher Watkins, who wrote in his book, um, Biblical Critical Theory, something I've quoted before, he says, the triumph of Christianity has been so great that what was once revolutionary is now unremarkable. This idea that we should love everybody. It, we don't even realize how 
vastly different this is than every other way of thinking and really how nothing else sustains and supports this outlook on uh, or moral vision. Uh, he talks about these radical reversals that have taken place in history because of Christianity and love, the centrality of love, being one of those and being key. So Christianity alone brought the centrality of love into the moral discourse, and it's also uniquely able to sustain it because of this doctrine of the image of God. But that doesn't help us fully yet. So we've got to think about what actually we mean by love. And so that's the next thing I want to talk about, the ingredients of love, the three ingredients of love. Um, so the first is uh, kind of what I've already been talking about, that love is an active concern for the good of other people. Those, that's the first ingredient, active concern, all right? Love is active. That's something Jesus shows us here. Love is not mere affection. It's not an infatuation. It's not just liking someone or sentimental feelings for someone's well-being. Jesus says that we should do what we wish others would do to us. Love is about how we act and live in the world towards those that we actually encounter in our lives, not merely feelings and sentiments about the world, generally. It's very easy to love the world. It's very hard to love and to do good to the people that are right in front of us. So love is active, and it is an active concern for the good of other people. It's not merely affirming people. In fact, it's often um, countering them in particular ways. Love does affirm the dignity and the value of each person, but love does not affirm what is not true and what is not good and what is not beautiful in other people. And this, friends, is probably the biggest sticking point for us today. And when we talk about the centrality of love and when sort of the secular culture talks about the centrality of love, we go in different directions on this point because we are called to seek the good of other people. And that means um, that if people don't know what is good for them, then what we are doing to them may differ from what they want done to them, right? Uh, loving a person does not mean that we do whatever they want us to do to them. It means to seek their good. And, and we know intuitively that actually is the way we should love people when we think about sort of hard situations. Think about the suicidal person who is struggling with whether or not they even want to live. Love does not just affirm their thoughts and say, yeah, that's probably the best thing for you to do is to just end it. Love seeks the good of that person and counters what they're thinking and calls them to something different, calls them to experience change and have hope. It does not affirm their beliefs about themselves or about the world. Love resists that which is evil and destructive in other people. And we know this. Think about good parenting, education, counseling, uh, practicing medicine. All of these disciplines involve relating to a person for their good, even when they do not know what that is and might actually think what you're doing to them is harmful in some way. Love actively is concerned for the good of another person. That's the first ingredient. The second ingredient is that we have to have knowledge of the good. And this is where uh, it, gets, it gets tricky because um, we have to have wisdom if we're gonna love other people. Fools cannot love. Fools can't love. What do I mean by that? Well, they may have a sincere concern for the well-being of another person, and that's a big part of love. They may pursue that, but if they don't have knowledge of how people work, about how the world works, 
what people need, then, then when they act to seek the good of a person, they may do a lot of damage and actually harm that person. Sincere persons who want to heal other people but lack knowledge of what it means to be human are going to do harmful things. And this is where, again, the problem of our uh, sort of outlook today comes into, uh, into view. We live in this time when people believe that the purpose of their life is not transcendent. There's no inherent nature in the world. The purpose of their life is whatever they determine their life to be. I belong to me. I determine what my life is about. And therefore, I communicate to other people what I believe is good for me. And they love me by affirming that and treating me the way I want to be affirmed. And so good is determined by each individual. But Christians cannot think this way, friends, because we believe God created us with a particular nature that is directed toward particular ends that are good for us. Our good conforms to the way God made us and where God is taking us to be. And so, for instance, just as a doctor must know how the body works, regardless of a person's own ideas, in order to care for them well, we have to know how the world works and how people work in order to treat them in love. We have to be wise. A parent has to know what the good life looks like and how to get there in order to raise up a child and love them well, rather than just affirming all their ideas about what life is like and what they need to do in order to grow up to be who they want to be. When love is viewed in romantic terms, and when people lack knowledge of what it means to be male and female and the purpose of sex and marriage, Love in sex and marriage gets very confused. And that's obviously a real challenging point in our culture today. What's the harm if two people love each other? What, you know, what they do? Why does it matter to you? Well, nothing matters. If they love each other, that's great. Nobody's opposed to them loving one another. Uh, what we're concerned about is what it means to be married and what sex does and how it works and what it's supposed to be aimed at and how that forms people and how that shapes society. Sex and marriage have a certain structure and a particular good in mind. And so we want people to live in ways that are good for them and for the world. So love requires knowledge and wisdom. If we're actually going to seek the good of other people, we have to have an understanding of what God made us for and how we are structured and how we work. The third ingredient is um, a true awareness of our own motivations. So everything I've just said, you may, maybe you're getting a little squeamish about that. Maybe you're like, oh man, you're, you're telling everybody to start treating people in ways that people might feel violated by that. And, and there's some truth in that. Because if we don't understand ourselves and what, be, what might be motivating us, then we might actually tell ourselves we're seeking the good of other people and we're acting for their good, but we're really just delusional and we're living in self-centered ways and in greedy ways. Because Friends, we all have a profound capacity to lie and deceive ourselves, don't we? What's really motivating us? And so we can justify ugly behavior towards other people out of, well, I'm just doing this for your good. And so um, if we're going to love well, we not only have to know the world and have an active concern for people's well-being, we actually have to know ourselves and see what's going on in us as we relate to other people. Love requires a deep humility that leads us to truly listen to other people and honestly reflect on what is driving us. So with all that in mind, where do we get the basis for love and the power to actually love uh, other people? And this is the third point I want to look at today. The three foundations for love that um, I, I want to talk about come, I, in some ways, they're right in a couple of verses in 1 John chapter 4, where John says in verse 8, God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his son into the world 
so that we might live through him. I think that gives us three foundations for love. And then I want to talk lastly about the power of love. So the first foundation that we see there, that's at the sort of the ground of the whole biblical story, is that God is love. God is love. This is fundamental to the universe. It's fundamental to who God is, right? And this is an important question to reflect on. Um, how do people view what's fundamental to the universe? Is it love or is it power? Christians believe that God is this triune God, this three-personed God who is one being, who in his very essence is love, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live eternally in this community of love, of self-giving, and of joy, and of life. And this is the character and essence of who God is. Love is not an accident in God. It's not ancillary. It's the very essence of who he is. Now, what I mean by that is like, um, I... I uh, Let's not use love because I'm not a perfectly loving being, but I might, you might say I'm a discerning person, okay? And, um, and you would say, great, Derek is characterized by discernment, but that discernment is not the essence of who I am. It's a characteristic. It's an accent. It's something I can grow in or lose over time, but I still remain me. But God is not that way. He is loving in his essence. His character is his essence. They are indivisible. It's who he is. And God as the creator has created as a loving God. And like an artist, his world has a reflection of who he is because he made it. So love is woven into the very fabric of the universe. No other religion has understood the divine or the created world in this way. There is a reason why only Christianity um, came up with the centrality of love and can sustain this ethic. Naturalism materialism and Eastern religions see what is essential to creation or to the universe as impersonal forces or substances. That's fundamental. All these forces, you know, sort of at work with one another. Power, basically. Paganism sees the gods as exalted in power, but ultimately just petty and dependent sort of superhumans, and that the universe is fundamentally about conflict and power. Islam, God is absolute oneness and power, right? Power is at the center of how all the other religions and worldviews see what is fundamental to the universe. But in Christianity, love is at the fundamental basis of the whole entire universe because God is love. We must love because that's the world that God made, a life bred out of his love. The second foundation is that not only is God love and creation done in love, but redemption comes from God's love. God made us in love to share his life as a joy, as a, um, it, to share his life and joy as a gift. But um, the view of creation that other people have is that everything exists because of violence and conflict, right? As I said earlier, paganism sees uh, God's having conflict with one another, there's violence, and then because of that, you know, creation unfolds, right? Out of the dead body of some defeated God or something like that. But um, in Christianity, God creates in love. He also redeems in love. God so loved the world that he gave his son. The son loved his own, we're told, even to the point of death on a cross. God has poured out his love for us through the Holy Spirit, right? God redeems in love. Love is a gift, and it is usually a gift of grace. It is given to us in the face of our own failure to love God and one another. Love does not seek its own. It seeks the good of another, even in the face of hate. And that has, is how God has treated us. He created us 
even as we rebelled against him and resist him and don't love him and don't honor the way he made the world, he loves us even more by sending his son. So love is grounded in God who is love, in his works of love. And then lastly, um, the third foundation is that love is what makes people flourish. See, the Pharisees that Jesus is constantly addressing in this sermon, they cared about justice and righteousness. They had, a, they had a concern for justice. But Jesus taught in verse 517 that we need to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. See, bare justice is about balancing the scales. Eye for an eye. That's bare justice. It's about equity. And that, that is important. And God is concerned about that. But his justice, his way of righteousness does more than that. It restores life. And if you... Um, think deeply about everything we know about what it looks like for people to flourish in the world, you know that it is grounded in the need for uh, love from other people. Communities can't exist without love. Um, people can't grow up in healthy ways without love. Love is fundamental to the world flourishing. And that is why this message of Christianity has been so widely accepted throughout the world and embraced People just have lost touch with what it's grounded in. So those are the foundations, but the question still remains, how can we actually love like this? If, if you're sitting here today and you're having conflicts with people in your life or people that you can't forgive and you're very angry with or there are people harming you, or you know, there may be all sorts of things you're thinking right now where you're like, I do not want to seek that person's good. Where do you find the power, right? Because the reality is, Love involves seeking the good of another person, and it's very costly to do that. It's costly to seek the good of another person, especially when we feel like our, the good of our own life is in, is in jeopardy, right? You can't seek the good of another person if you feel like you will be losing your own good. That, like, nobody has the power to do that. We, just, we don't work that way. And so um, secular people can talk about loving other people all day long. We need to love people, but they're only going to be able to go so far as that doesn't cost them them pursuing their fulfillment in their life because this is the one life that they've got and they've got to make it their own and they're not going to love people past that point, right? And even religious people, even us in the church, um, we can look at loving other people as something that's going to get us a certain reward and sort of transactional relationship with God. Yeah, I'll be good to other people insofar as God gives me a reward. And that always puts limits. That's always like, how far do I have to go, right? We can only love other people, friends, if we first love God. We can only love other people if we first love God, right? Because to love someone else, even when it costs us, we have to see the image of God in that other person. We have to want to honor that person and seek their good as a way of, uh, of honoring the one that we love, who is God, our creator and redeemer. To love God is to begin to value other people as much as we value ourselves. But even that's not going to help us because how do we love God? We can only love him if we know that he has first loved us. You cannot love God unless you understand that he has first loved us. We have to see that God created us for life and joy. We have to see that he sent Jesus into the world, not just for everybody, but for you. You have to see that Jesus came into the world for you, that you are a sinner, that you have failed to love God and your neighbor, that you have failed to honor of, of, of the image of God in other people, and yet 
God sent his son to die for you. That you were an enemy, self-centered, greedy, and he laid down his life. He bore the, what, what a world without love looks like, which is death. He bore that for you so that you could live. And he secured your good in the new creation. And that is how you can love other people. You know your good is secure because Christ laid his life down for you. And if you receive God's love as a gift of grace and you dwell on that, you meditate on that, you cling to that, you trust in it, then you can begin to find the power to love those difficult people in your life. So friends, love your neighbor because God has loved you in Christ. I want to conclude with just a few reflections on uh, sort of applications, how, how that actually can look in our life. Um, love is almost always small and simple. That's vast majority of times, love is small and simple. It is kindness here, respect there, some gentleness, service, encouragement. Love, the type of love that Jesus is talking about here is usually in very small and simple things in the people that you encounter every day in your life. And so you got to look for those small and simple ways to look for the good of other people, which means you have to have an awareness of how you're showing up in those relationships and what's driving you. If you're consumed with your own anxiety and fears and even lust to get from other people, you won't be able to be present to them to seek their good. And so you need to reflect on that, do some work to figure out what, what drives me as I encounter the people every day in my life. Love does not always have to be these big grand gestures. It can be the simple small ways that you labor unnoticed by most people to seek the good of those around you. So love is often simple and small, but love is also often difficult and complex, right? It requires wisdom, okay? And there are particular ways that um, we need to act towards others that are loving, that are hard for us sometimes to see as loving. For instance, a lot of us have a hard time with setting up boundaries in our relationships with other people. It doesn't seem like, like love because I'm not doing what they want of me. But we have to learn that to love people sometimes means setting up boundaries and saying, no, I'm not going to do that with you because of these things or if these things are happening or I need space here. Because the reality is, friends, people need to grow up. People need to take responsibility for themselves to face their own sins. And sometimes that means they, they don't get what they want. And it is loving to actually set a boundary with them if you're doing it out of a concern for their good and not just because I don't want to be bothered by you. Um, also, correction and rebuke. Some of us have a very hard time doing that. It doesn't seem like love to tell somebody something that they don't want to hear about themselves or that might sting a little bit, but done in gentleness and in humility and in the right timing and out of a concern for their good, um, love involves sometimes correcting people, rebuking people, especially um, in, our, in our church. We need to develop that sort of habit with one another. And accountability also is an act of love. When we require people to face the consequences of their decisions and their actions, that is love. That's not, you know, accountability is not opposed to love. It's not failing to love people if we say you've done this and you're going to have to face these consequences. Now, there is a place for mercy and that takes wisdom. But generally speaking, accountability is, is also a way that we love people. Boundaries, correction, accountability. Love is difficult and complex. We need wisdom. Um, but then thirdly, love starts where you are. And I've said this already in some ways, but um, we have to be wary of uh, our focus being about loving humanity broadly and uh, the planet. 
okay? It's good to have a concern for those things, but the reality is we are called to pursue the good of everyone that we meet and encounter, our family, our friends, our neighbors, the strangers that we meet. Um, you are a, you're just one person. You cannot love the world. You cannot love humanity as a whole. Most of us never have any opportunity to do anything that will actually, you know, involve seeking the good of the entire planet, right? We are called to live faithfully in the place that God has put us and to love in the small ways the people that are in our lives. And then the last thing I'll say about love is that love needs to direct the big picture of our lives and our family mission. So what do I mean by that? Um, we need to ask ourselves questions like, is your life overall aimed at loving other people or is it aimed at self-fulfillment? Do you see your life as a stewardship of God calling you to love a people and a place or to love others through your vocation, the sort of work that you do where you serve, in this sense, you do serve the common good? Or is your life just about um, how do I take that next step to live into the to um, self-fulfillment in some way or the American dream? Examine your own commitments to people, place, examine your goals and say, do these accord with loving other people? loving my community, loving uh, the people that God has given me. So chew on that. And um, as we go to the table, um, remember that this is a picture of God's love for you. That right here in this meal, um, the love of God is displayed for you. We see that Christ gave his body and shed his blood. He, he encountered and went all the way down into death so that you could live. He did not seek his own good. He sought your good. And he loved you to the very end. And so come to the table trusting in that, knowing that your good is secure. God promises that in this table. And then let that fuel a life of love. So let's um, pray together. Father, this is um, familiar stuff to us. Um, we know we're supposed to love others. And yet um, we lack the character and the strength to do this so often. And so we rejoice that you've shown us grace in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he died for us and that you um, sent your spirit into our hearts to transform us and to grow in us this character of love. And we pray that as we feast on this meal in faith, repenting of our sin, trusting in your promises that you would be renewing us to love one another, to love our families, our neighbors, our friends, so that um, whoever we encounter, we are, are becoming people that we seek their good. Even when that is hard, even when that might not be perceived as love, we pray that we would be um, courageous and humble as we love those around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.